Well, again, good morning. I feel like I have to say that because it's written in my notes. But uh, we got another small crowd this morning. But honestly, I, I'm not sad about it. I really love the, the time of, of church planting we're in right now. We've, we've started this brand new church, and we're still a small group of people, and which means we can get to know each other even better, and we can worship God in this intimate setting. And so this is, for me, this is, this is where it's at. I, I love this as, as you know, as different as it may look to people who are kind of more used to, to bigger churches and things like that. This is, this is a special time, so I hope that you enjoy this. But as I said a few minutes ago, we are entering into the weeks of Advent. And those are the weeks that lead up to our celebration of a momentous event that changed the very course of history. Now I chose that particular phrase on purpose. I chose the phrase that we will be celebrating the event that changed the course of history for a very specific reason. And the, and the reason why I chose this phrase, and, and I chose to phrase it in this particular manner, is that because we as human beings are creatures who are enraptured by myth. We love myths. And from a very early age, we human beings are indoctrinated by myths in the forms of fairy tales or stories, bedtime stories or movies. And the purpose of these myths are, are, are pretty wide-ranging. Some try to instill values and morals within us. Others simply are created to entertain or, or even to propagate a political ideology. And, and many other myths are created to simply help people try to make sense of the world. We love myths. But in our fascination with myths, we have sometimes made the mistake of, of sort of blurring the line between reality and the mythological. We don't really know where one stops and the other begins. And the prime example of this is none other than the central figure of Christmas. I'm not talking about a guy in a red suit. I'm, I'm talking about Jesus Christ. Many throughout the millennia have attempted to place Jesus neatly within the box of mythos claiming that he belongs next to Zeus or Osiris or Odin in the pantheon of mythological gods. However, we as Christians in this room, we must recognize and we must remember and we must, we must propagate and we must proclaim that Christmas is not a time for celebrating mythology. It's not. It is a time that we celebrate the real true and historical event of God stepping down into history, into our history. We are celebrating a true story of a child that was and is the fullness of humanity and the fullness of deity. And through the evidence of experience and through the written historical testimony that puts any other ancient historical documentation to shame, we can enter into this Advent season with joy, knowing that we are celebrating a story that has a real impact on reality. And we're celebrating not only the one who affected reality, but the one who wove the fabric of reality itself. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 4, 7, 
kind of emphasize this point. He tells us that we are to have nothing to do with godless and silly myths. We're to have nothing to do with godless and silly myths. Christmas is not a time for silly myths, but a time to worship the true and living God. To celebrate the coming of the King, the advent of the Prince of Peace. We're here to celebrate the Messiah that was prophesied to come and to save His people. That is what Advent is about. And today we want to look at that, that very first historical, historical prophecy of the advent of Christ that was given way before the time of Malachi. It was given before the time of Zechariah or Jeremiah or even Isaiah. And this prophecy is actually different than all of those other prophecies. It's a little bit different than those. And the reason is, is because this prophecy wasn't given through the mouthpiece of a human prophet. Not only that, but it wasn't even given directly to human beings. The prophecy wasn't, wasn't spoken for human beings at this point in time. But instead, it was spoken from the very mouth of God Himself. And the one that He was speaking to was the ancient serpent in the Garden of Eden. The very first prophecy of Christ was spoken to Satan. Can you believe that? That seems kind of strange to me, but it's amazing. But before we go any further about this first Christmas prophecy, let us pray. Father, we thank you, God, for this time. <coughs> we thank you for the privilege of being here this morning. God, I thank you for everyone who is in this room, Lord, who had so many reasons to, to not come. But Lord, put you first and decided to come and to celebrate your Advent. So Lord, I pray that your Spirit is our guide this morning. I pray that our hearts are moldable to your Word. And God, I pray that you just give us ears to hear you. I pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Now, before we dive in, I want to let you know that, that I once heard a sermon by this, uh, this man named Sinclair Ferguson. And the way that he unpacked this message stuck with me, or he unpacked this, this text for the, that we were going to be going over today. The way that he unpacked this passage, it stuck with me in such a profound way. And it helped me understand or to, to even see this passage in a, in, a, in a brighter light, I guess you could call it. And I, I want to let you know from the outset that my sermon is heavily influenced today by Dr. Ferguson and his extraordinary exegesis on this passage, or his, his extraordinary uh, explanation of this passage. And so I just wanted to kind of put that out there on, uh, on the forefront. But as I spoke in the uh, introduction to this sermon, uh, we talked a lot about myth and how we love myths. And another portion of scripture that is currently in vogue to speak of as myth, even among some proclaiming Christians, is the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. Now, this is not the time to, to kind of pry open the debate between the different views of interpretation, but suffice it to say, to, to regard these first three chapters of the Word of God as only figurative 
as merely symbolic or mythical in nature is to ignore the historic narrative style it was written in, and not only that, but to risk losing the historical and spiritual reality found within these pages. Now, with all that being said, if you have any questions about any of that, I would love to speak with you afterward. But for now, I want us to focus in on the events of Genesis chapter 3, specifically verse 15, because it is here that we see our first glimpse of Christmas. But let us first read from verse 1 to get some, get some context for verse 15. Read with me. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the fruit which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. If you begin reading in the Bible, in, in chronological order, sort of what Paul was talking about earlier, you will kind of start seeing this, this pattern, this almost that, like, the rest of the Bible is somewhat of an extended footnote to verse 15, this last verse that we read. This statement of the enmity between the offspring or the seed of the woman is being continually unfolded all throughout Scripture. It is being unfolded in the story of Abraham. It's being unfolded in the story of Isaac, of Jacob, of Moses, David, and all the rest. That's the story that's being told all throughout Scripture. And it is continually unfolding until the seed of the woman comes to crush the head of the serpent. You see, this world has been poisoned 
This world has been poisoned by the venom of sin. Of the sin of Adam and Eve, wrought by the temptation of the serpent, Satan. And this world has been poisoned by an alien nation from God. And you see that right away in verse 8, don't you? Adam and Eve heard the God that they once shared the deepest of relationship with, walking in the coolness of the day, a walk that before they would have joined Him in on. And yet they hid. They hid from Him. And they tried to hide the nakedness of their bodies from, them, from Him. And they tried to hide their spiritual nakedness from Him because they knew that before God, their hearts laid bare. Their hearts laid open, and he would be able to see the corruption of their sin. And the presence of God that once, once comforted them, and now frightened them. And the poisoning from the sin that they committed, of eating from the one tree in the garden the Lord put off limits, it spread even further than that. Tension was created between human relationships with man and woman trying to master and dominate the other. In verse 16, the pain of childbearing is intensified. And now in pain, women will bring forth their children. Now Dr. Ferguson points out that there may actually be a double meaning to that. He said that the first is what we all know, that women struggle immensely in labor. But this verse may also be pointing to the difficulties of parenting and the alienation between humanity and God being, being mirrored in the alienation between uh, child and parent that we see so often, especially in this country. You simply just have to look at the, uh, the, the rate of uh, single, uh, single mother households where fathers are completely absent, and the, the wreckage that comes from that in their children. And there's immense pain in that. The alienation continues between man and the earth. The ground no longer willingly giving up its precious resources. But you see, all of this tragedy, for that is what this section of the human story is. It is a tragedy. But for all of this tragedy, it began when our first father and our first mother decided for themselves that they no longer needed God. You see, the essential sin of Adam and Eve is summed up by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans. In chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says that they exchanged the glory of God. They exchanged the beauty of who He is. They exchanged His love, His mercy, His goodness, His, His power. They exchanged all of it. And they traded it in for creaturely things. Things that are by definition lesser. And that's our world, isn't it? It's the world we live in. We are obsessed with material things of this world. And more often than not, we place those things at a higher value than God Himself. And we do this on a daily basis. And that is the sin that invades and corrupts our souls. We spoke last week of the quote from John Calvin saying that our sinful hearts are idol factories. Churning out idol after idol. And C.S. Lewis, along these lines, he once wrote an article on John Milton's epic poem, Paradise Lost. 
And C.S. Lewis is, is pondering this, this kind of fantastical take on the fall of man. And Lewis comes to the conclusion that what caused the fall was Eve bowing before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and what she thought that it could promise her. And in doing so, she refused to bow before God. Essentially, she bowed before what was created instead of the Creator. And friends, I'm, I'm ashamed to say I do that all the time. All the time. I did it this morning. I didn't want to get out of bed. I wanted to just lay there. It's cold outside, if you guys can't tell. And I worshipped my bed in that moment. I thought it was more important for me to stay cozy and warm in my bed than it was to come here. And I, and I started feeling that temptation to, to creep in, to, to think that, that my comfort, my immediate comfort, was more important than God, more important than this. And friends, that's our tragedy, isn't it? We bow the knee to what God has made and not God himself. That is my own heart's inclination, and I am so ashamed to say that. I'm so often enticed by lesser things, exchanging the glory of God for, some, for, for things, for possessions that will someday turn to dust. And Romans 1, again, tells us that like Adam and Eve tried to hide in the garden from God behind, behind trees and shrubs and bushes, all humanity now tries to hide from God by suppressing the truth of Him in their own hearts. And again... I do the same thing. And friends, this is, this is devastating. This is devastating for us because, because don't you see? We were, we were made for the glory of God. We were made for that. We were made to love Him in all of His glory. That was our purpose. And we know that because we were told in Genesis 1 that we are made in His image. We're made in God's image. And the destiny of man was to reflect God to the world, to be a reflection of His wondrous glory. That was our destiny, but we sinned. And, we, and uh, though we are still the image bearers of God, Romans 3 tells us that we fell short of that glory that we were made for. We fell short of His glory because we traded it in for the world and the sinful desires of our own hearts. And so this Christmas season, the real heartbreak is not simply that we've been morally naughty, all deserving of lumps of coal. It's not the main tragedy. The real tragedy is that we have lost our grips on our destiny. We have lost our grip on our destiny, which was glory. And our situation now is that of immense sorrow. And you have heard me say many times that we should be careful. We should be very careful to place ourselves in a morally superior place than those who fail within Scripture. You see, it is easy for us to look at this historic account of Adam and Eve and say that if I were there, if I were in that garden, I never, not me, I would never have eaten of that fruit. Not this guy. And friend, if that is what you think, then you don't quite know yourself as well as you thought you did. You see, in fancy theological terms, I'm getting nerdy again here for a second, but in fancy theological terms, Adam was what was called the federal head of mankind. 
the federal head of mankind. Meaning that he represented all of humanity within the garden. What this primarily means is that when he fell into sin, all of humanity after him were also corrupted to the core by sin. You are not sinful because you sin, friends. You sin because you are sinful. 1 Corinthians 15 says, For in Adam, in Adam, all die. All suffer spiritual and physical death. Sin corrupts us all. But secondarily, the federal headship of Adam means that if you or I or even the most wonderfully moral Christian that has ever lived were also placed in the garden, we would have done the exact same thing as Adam and Eve. Every single one of us. The only difference is if, that, if I was there, I probably would have eaten it way sooner. And I probably didn't need prompting from Satan. I would have just probably done it. And so if you carefully ponder it, you just take a minute to really just think on it, you'll see that our spirits are so much like Adam and Eve. You see, the Father, He gave them everything. He gave them everything. And He said to them, everything I have is yours. All I wanted was for you to show me that you trust me, that you will obey me. Because your trust and obedience, it isn't just for your own good. It is for your glory. It's for your glory. And now when you looked upon the tree, and when you listened to the whispers of the serpent, you turned from me. And he said that that as if I haven't given you anything. We as sinful human beings have done the same. We've done the same. We look at the one who has given us everything, even the breath in our lungs, and instead of trusting and obeying him, we look to the world, or we look to our own intellect. We look to worldly relationships, and we give ourselves over to them. We give ourselves over to them as pagan idol worshipers. Giving ourselves to, to fake gods made of wood and iron and flesh. And we turn from God as if He has given us nothing. And so this story of Genesis 3 is a story of a world poisoned by a profound alienation and a tragic decision. It is a story of a destiny that has been destroyed by sin. Sin that lays waste to your life, that is laid waste to my life, The book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament is is an outpouring of a heart that has recognized this. The author of Ecclesiastes cries out, vanity. Everything is vanity. Everything on this earth that we give our lives to is simply just a temporary distraction to take our minds away from the reality that without God, we will soon return to the dust of our forefather, Adam. If you're not thoroughly depressed yet, and I know you're thinking that this was supposed to be a Christmas sermon, so man, come on, lighten up, guy. But as the story of Genesis 3 comes to a close, we see that Adam and Eve, and therefore all of mankind, is exiled from the Garden of Eden. They're no longer allowed to dwell in the presence of God in his paradise. 
In verse 24, we see that God sent a cherubim with a flaming sword to guard the entrance. Brothers and sisters, within that story of tragedy, the first telling of the story of Christmas is found. The first telling of the story that, that gives us cause for hope and joy during not just this season, but through every season. As we've mentioned before, verse 15 tells of a conflict that will come to a head in an individual. And that individual will crush the head of the serpent. But in the process, his heel will be bruised. And in that prophecy given to Satan, God, of course, is speaking of Jesus. He will step down from his rightful place before the Father, beside the Father, and come down as a, as a helpless baby boy who will be the one who will put an end to this tale of sorrow and destruction. But it kind of begs a question, one that I had. And that question is, why in the process of defeating Satan and his demonic offspring must the heel of Jesus be bruised? Why? Well, the reason is, is because in order for, for you and I to gain entrance back into that garden. For our alienation from God to be overcome, there must be someone who will take on the pain and suffering and judgment of getting run through by that cherubim's flaming sword. You see, there's no way back into the presence of God. There's no way back into the eternal blissfulness of His glory without the seed of the woman who breaks into history. But as He is paving a way for us back into that garden, back into relationship with God, He must, He must come under the awful, flaming judgment sword of the Heavenly Father. And that is the picture of the cross. Jesus fell on our fiery sword of judgment at the cross, where He bore our sins on His shoulders, making Himself an offering for our sins. But though his heel was bruised on that Roman instrument of execution, his death, burial, and resurrection was the death knell for Satan. And it was the death knell for death itself. You see, right now, the heel of Jesus is upon the serpent's head. And it will be fully crushed on the day of the second advent, of the second coming of Christ, where the whole earth will be renewed. And it will become the perfect garden in which we will spend eternity in the warmth of God's glory. For those who have placed their faith in Christ, your destiny has been restored by the blood of Christ. And so that is the meaning of this earliest Christmas prophecy. That the conflict between the kingdom of God and the dominion of darkness came to its penultimate moment that first Christmas morning 2,000 years ago. And friends, this, this story is no myth. It's not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. It's real. Our salvation is real. We just must we just believe in it. So praise God. Praise God for this season. Praise God for the Advent. Let's pray.
Father God, we thank you for your son. Lord, we thank you that you sent him to this earth, God. Lord, you, you sent him to this earth and he took on, Lord, flesh. And everything that came with it, God. All the pains, all the aches, all the illnesses, everything. Lord, he experienced it. He experienced heartache. He experienced suffering in ways that we can't even imagine. Even those in this room who have experienced the, the worst tragedies that, that the rest of us can, uh, can't even fathom, Lord. Lord God, you experienced it, Lord. Your son experienced it and are with us in our own pain, Lord. And so we thank you for that and we thank you that he died on the cross for our sins, Lord. God, we love you. I pray this in your son's name.